Good morning, everybody. Good morning. One thing I can remember from when I was a little, little boy was that no one has ever had a problem hearing me. One of the first things I remember that ever happened in the Free Ball Church building was being told, now, Gene, stay quiet and let the other children have an opportunity to answer a question. Now, I'm afraid that has not uh, changed since. But hopefully, by being blessed with a voice that projects, we'll be able to hear what I want to share from God's Word with you here this morning. But I appreciate the opportunity and the honor that's implied in being here with you this morning, not only in this great group of God's people, but in this historic location. And you may remember, I think it was last week or the week before, one of the messages that I did virtually, I meant with every word, which is that Lindsay Avenue is uniquely positioned at the open door. Because used to be so many congregations of God's people within the downtown area, and to my knowledge, there may be one, maybe two down in the center. And so of all of the places where God's people meet, this congregation truly is at the open door to bring God's word to people that so, so often need it, need it so much. So remember that at least from uh, last, last week, I believe. Now, just to make sure since you brought that in, four suppers at the very end. Got to get this uh, program down of how we do things when we're in person again. We're all out of, out of the habit of that. Uh, we're going to be in John chapter 3 this morning. If you're watching at home, if you, uh, this paper everybody's talked about, uh, there's a, a Word document that Robbie has. She can be glad to email it to you. Just ask. Uh, I find that being able to have something around that you can print out, pull out a couple of days later, find it. Falling behind a shelf a month later, help remind us of the things that we're going to talk about. But here, John chapter 3, a very, very important chapter in the Gospel of John that I think goes well with what I've tried to discuss the last few weeks and months. Been talking a lot about the importance of being busy, the importance of doing good works, why we do good works, why we are so focused on helping other people. You can't do any of that. If what's talked about here in John chapter 3 hasn't occurred first. So I'm kind of backing up a step to say if we're going to actually be involved in serving others, if we're going to be loving our neighbor, we first have to be a member of God's family. And that's part of what, a big part of what Jesus is going to be talking about here in John chapter 3. And it starts off here with Nicodemus, so let's take a look. John chapter 3, we read, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. We know that Nicodemus was a rich man. He was a rich man. In John chapter 19, verse uh, 39, we know that Nicodemus bought a 100-pound mixture of myrrh and aloes, myrrh and aloes for Jesus' body after Jesus' death. Nicodemus was involved and, and spent some money to get spices to preserve his body. 100 pounds is a lot. That's not cheap. That's not cheap. So Nicodemus would have been a rich man. He was also a ruler. The text says a ruler of the Jews. He was a ruler. He was a member of the Sanhedrin, the Jewish ruling, governing body 
that had 70 people in it. So out of all the Jewish people living in Judea and Jerusalem, Nicodemus was a very important man, a ruler, a member of the Sanhedrin. He was also a Pharisee. A Pharisee. Now when you read the New Testament, it may sometimes come across to you that there must have been Pharisees on every street corner. Maybe almost every Jewish person you read about in the Bible was a Pharisee. That's not really true. There were never more, Josephus, the Jewish historian tells us, never really more than about 6,000 total Pharisees. So certainly a lot more Pharisees than there were members of the Sanhedrin, but it was a fairly small group. Someone became a Pharisee by taking a pledge in front of other people that they would devote their lives to following every detail of what was called the scribal law, the law and the rules and regulations that the scribes had laid out. God's law, if you think about it, is a fence. A fence. You cross that fence and you are in a violation of God's law. You have sinned. A fence. Well, making sure you don't cross that fence is a pretty important thing. I mean, imagine it's an electric fence, right? No one wants to get near the fence. So what the scribes did is they set up a lot of warning things all around the fence. They put a fence outside of the fence. Think of it that way. A fence outside of the fence. That way, if you never violate one of these additional rules and regulations, you're never going to cross the fence and violate the law of God. So when the Pharisees said they were going to follow the laws of the scribes, they were going to follow God's law and all these additional do's and don'ts that the scribes, the experts in the law, had put together. Let me give you an example of that, what we're talking about. The law said that you should not work on the Sabbath. Remember the Sabbath, keep it holy. Do not work on the Sabbath. Well, okay. But what is work? If I can't work on the Sabbath, I need to know what work is. So, the scribal law came out of the Mishnah. had 24 chapters on the Sabbath. These scribes wrote out all these extra details about the Sabbath to make sure we don't accidentally cross that fence and violate the law of God. So what is work? To tie a knot is work. You put your shoes on today? Looks like looks like Thurl's got a knot down there. Anybody here have uh, uh, you know the little snap-on shoes or uh, you know, stuff? Yep, there we go. Didn't you, that's good, right? Those shoes would be good shoes because they would not involve tying a knot. You were not supposed to tie a knot on the Sabbath day. Well, the problem is you had to define what kind of a knot meant you should not tie it and what was okay to tie it. Let me get this all put up here and we'll talk about it. Alright. A knot has to be defined. What is a knot? Here's what they said. The following are knots, the making of which makes a man guilty. Here are knots that if you tie these knots, you violated the law of God. Here are the knots. The knot of camel drivers and the knot of a sailor. So if you're a sailor on a boat and you're tying a knot for something, ah, work. If you are a camel driver, you've got all these camels and you have to tie a knot for something, work. You are guilty if you tie any of those as well as untie them. You're doing work. 
But knots that could be undone with one hand were considered okay. <laughs> can you tie your shoe with one hand? I, I can't. But if you could just if you could tie your shoe with one hand, that's not work. As well, a woman may tie up the strings of her cap and those of her girdle and shoes and sandal. So, but what about needing to run a bucket down into a well? You could not use a rope, but strangely enough, a woman on the Sabbath could use her girdle because you could tie a knot with a girdle. So, if you needed water on the Sabbath, the ladies would go out to the well. Look around, I suppose, get that girdle out, tie it to the bucket, pull the water up using the girdle. What's the problem? The goal is such a good one. No one wants people to violate the laws of God. But you end up making huge numbers of additional laws that are man-made. Man-made. The problem you have with what the scribes set out is they make these man-made laws equal to the laws of God. And that led the Pharisees astray. And Jesus spends a lot of time talking about, complaining about, pointing out the errors of making the laws of men as equal to the laws of God. We always have to be careful of that ourselves. We have things that we have decided you should not do that aren't specifically spelled out in the text. You know, and so many congregations sometimes divide over, you shouldn't do that. When it's not spelled out in the Bible at all, we always need to be real careful that we don't make a lot of rules and regulations that God hasn't made either, combining on other people. So when we read about Nicodemus, we read there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night. Okay, by night. Some say that coming by night was a sign of caution. I've heard people teach that he came by night because he was afraid. He didn't want to be seen. He wanted to talk to Jesus, but was kind of looking over his shoulders to make sure nobody saw him coming. That's possible, but let's think about it. Better to come at night than not coming at all. I'm never going to in any way complain about somebody that wants to find out about Jesus, whether it's at night, two in the morning, whenever. I'm so glad somebody wants to talk about Jesus. I don't care what it is. I don't care if they're worried about somebody seeing him. They came and wanted to talk about Jesus. But the text does not say that he was afraid. He came by night. Another possibility... The rabbis said the best time to study the law was at night. You were less likely to be disturbed. So maybe Nicodemus is coming at night because the problems of the day are going to be gone by now. He can get what we say sometimes from the busiest parents, quality time. The phone isn't going to ring at night as much perhaps, right, as in the middle of the day. So he gets some quality time with Jesus, perhaps, right? Perhaps. At night, he actually hoped to find the light. Perhaps he hoped to see the light of God shining through the teachings that he was going to be discussing in that coming at nighttime. And when he talks to him, he says, uh, Rabbi, we know that no one, that you are a teacher from God, for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. Now this early, this early in Jesus' 
his ministry, it's already evident that Jesus is a teacher come from God. It's really difficult. It's really difficult to miss something that obvious. And yet, so many people spend so much of every day missing the obvious. Jesus is the teacher who came from God. He is, in fact, the light of the world. And what he has to say is what we all need to listen to. Let's take another couple of passages here to get up to here. Jesus answered and said to Nicodemus, We know you're a teacher coming from God because no one can do the things that you do unless God is with him. Jesus goes right to the point. Too often we beat around the bush. We kind of mosey up to something. We ease into a subject. Jesus just flat out. Uh, if Jesus were talking to me, what would he tell me? What's the most important thing I need to hear? What's the most important thing you need to hear? It might take me 20, 30 minutes to ease around to it, to break down the barriers, put everybody at ease, and eventually get there. Not Jesus. Boom. First thing he tells Nicodemus is the truth he needs to hear. He says, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. He gets right to the point. The most important thing Nicodemus needs to know, and probably the hardest thing for him to understand, based on what he says after this, he says you need to be born again. The word translated again there from Greek, I, I don't pronounce it properly, is anothen. You can see it in the notes, anothen. However, it was originally said. It has three meanings. It means from the beginning. You need to be born from the beginning. Born again, born from the beginning. You need to be born the second time, or you simply need to be born from above. Three different ways or, or ways of translating that word. All three of these, it turns out, are involved in being born again. To be born again is to undergo such a radical change that. It really is like being born again. We are all guilty day to day of losing the struggle. Am I going to live for myself or am I going to live for God? Being born again ought to be something that's a one-time event. Maybe it's just me. I find I almost really need to be born again every morning. Because I wake up wanting to do what God has asked me to do, what I know I need to do to love and serve God and love my neighbor. And yet, by the end of the day, I've had a struggle. I've had a time, two, three, four, of where I was working and doing things for myself. I like to encourage people to take some passages from Scripture, print them out, put them on a mirror, put them on a door, Put them someplace at a desk, the refrigerator, you know, whatever. Put it there so you can see it. I think this is another one of those. Unless I am born again, I cannot see the kingdom of God. If I'm living for myself, it isn't going to work out the way I want it to. How different are we from those who have not been born again? Somebody looking at my day-to-day -day life compared to the day-to-day -day life of someone that gives no lip service even to being a child of God. Can they tell any difference? 
At the end of the day, what did Gene do today? How did Gene respond to situations? What did Gene do that's different from what this person did? Who doesn't claim to be a child of God? There better be a difference. There must be a difference. Or it's a lie. If there is no difference between someone who is in no way claims to be a child of God and me, then I'm not telling the truth when I say this. I'm a member of God's family. There has to be a difference. Nicodemus gets straight to it. He says, how is this possible? How can someone be born again when they're old? Can someone, he goes straight to the literal, can someone enter into a mother's womb and be born again? Every mother that's ever lived said, I hope not. It was rough enough the first time. There's something to be noticed here. Nicodemus, and if you read through Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, this would be a great class one of these days. Whenever the disciples misunderstand Jesus, it's because hook, line, and sinker, they took him literally. They took him with the exact literal meaning of the words, just like Nicodemus does right here. You know, I'm all for a literal understanding of what God tells us, but you've got to be real careful because time after time after time after time again, the disciples miss it when they take him literally. John 4, you know, I have food you don't know about, Jesus tells the disciples. And they're looking around and saying, who brought him some meat? When in fact he wasn't talking about that at all. Lazarus is sleeping. Right? I mean, it's an interesting study. I don't think, I don't think you're going to find a single time they misunderstood when they took him figuratively. Just like Nicodemus. How's this possible? How am I going to be born again? It may very well be that Nicodemus understood that an internal change was necessary, but that he's talking about how terribly difficult that really is. The Jewish rabbis had said a proselyte, someone who becomes a Jewish person, has to be like a newborn child. You know, we don't know. We do know that Nicodemus continued to listen, continued to learn, and that he became a disciple of Jesus. We need to emulate Nicodemus when we encounter something we just don't understand yet. Jesus says to him, most assuredly, most assuredly, I say to you, unless one is born of water and of the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. Water is the symbol of cleansing. You're dirty, you go get some water. It's rather tough to clean up by rubbing dirt on yourself. Wanted to do that when I was a kid, but it's rather difficult to get clean rubbing dirt on yourself. Jesus says you need to be born of water and of the Spirit. When Jesus takes possession of our lives, it's not simply that the past is forgotten and forgiven, but the Spirit Himself living within us allows us to become so much more than we used to be. Got to be a new person. Got to be a new person. Turns out this happens absolutely at baptism. It really does. I want to share a couple of quotes with you from this. There you go. This is Justin Martyr, one of my favorite early Christians, writing in 160 AD. That's 70 ish years, 60, 70 years after 
the last book of the New Testament is written. Here's what he says. We were born without our own knowledge or choice, but by our parents. My parents didn't ask me if I wanted to come into this world, but because of their love for each other, here I am. So the first birth, I didn't have anything to do with. I didn't have any choice in it. But in order that we may become children of choice and knowledge, the second birth, a choice that I can make by being born again, to become children of choice and knowledge and may obtain, notice what he says here, may obtain in the water the remission of sins formerly committed. There is pronounced over him who chooses to be born again and has repented of his sins in the name of the Father, the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. 160 AD, Justin Martyr knew that baptism is where you are born again. My first birth, I had nothing to do with, no choice. The second birth is my choice. It's when I choose to die to my own way of living and become a new person. And that happens at baptism, 160 AD. A few years later than that, Cyprian, writing in 250 AD, he says, I used to regard it as a difficult matter, especially because of my character at that time. He became a follower of God as an adult. That a man could be born again. He said, I used to indulge my sins as if they were actually parts of me and native to me. But after that, by the help of water of the new birth, the stain of my former years has been washed away. A second birth restored me to a new man. When we choose to become members of God's family, the old me is left in the ground. The old me has gotten the old yellow treatment. Remember that book, The Dog Taken Behind the Barn? That's the way my old me is supposed to be. And yet so often, even after that old person's been put to death, we end up wanting to drag the old corpse around because we're kind of missing. That's not what the new birth is all about. It's supposed to be new. The recent attempts to define the birth of water as physical birth are just that, recent. Early Christians understood the exact reading that you see in John 3, that you must be born of water and the Spirit to see the kingdom of God. Continuing on, making sure I've got it all up here. <clears throat> Jesus answered, Nicodemus answered and said to him, how can these things be? Jesus answered and said, are you a teacher of Israel and don't know these things? How is it that you don't already know this? Most assuredly, I say to you, we speak what we know and testify what we have seen and you do not receive our witness. If I told you earthly things and you do not believe, how will you believe if I tell you of heavenly things? Well, consider This comparison of wind and the spirit. The same word is used for spirit and wind in the Greek. You can't see the wind. Uh, we'll confess, I was at the beach this last week. There was a lot of invisible things pushing against me when I was sitting out there. What was that? I never saw anything. How can something that I can't see make changes? How can it blow that stand around? 
How can it cause my hair to get messed up? That didn't take very long. How can the spirit that I can't see make changes? It's the same way. You don't see the spirit, but you see the effects of the spirit upon those who have been born again. Just trying to make sure this is all up here. Here we go. Jesus said he tried to make things simple. I've tried to tell you using this earthly illustration of being born again. I've tried to make it simple. How can you understand spiritual things if you even miss these easy things, he says. There's a warning for all of us right there. You can fairly easy to sit and discuss Christianity in an intellectual standpoint. To, to talk high in the clouds about different aspects of Christianity. To discuss this principle or that one. The really hard thing is to make a difference in the lives of other people just like the men. The really hard thing is to leave these doors and to move things the way the men might. Because one is just to discuss abstract principles. The other is to actually be born again of the Spirit. Remember that radical change of being born again that has to impact our wall. We continue to read it. I'm going to just keep going ahead and put the whole thing up here. I'll probably get rid of the line by line change. It'll be a lot easier next time. We read, No one has ascended to heaven but he that came down from heaven. That is, the Son of Man who is in heaven. In the Gospel of John, sometimes it's rather difficult to be able to tell when Jesus stops speaking and John begins commenting. It may be that Jesus quit speaking in verse 12, right before this. It's as if someone had asked John about all this before. And John's thing is, you know, the question is, if Jesus said all this, how do we know it's true? John's response seems to be that Jesus was in heaven. He came down from heaven to speak these words to all of us. And now he's back in heaven by the right hand of God. Only Jesus could tell us the truth, and that is in fact what he did. Now there's an important couple of verses coming up right here. I want to skip to the end of this one. As Moses lifted up the serpent in the wilderness, even so the Son of Man must be lifted up. Back in Numbers 21, that's where this reference comes from. The Israelites complained, wishing they'd never left Egypt. God sent a plague of deadly, fiery serpents into the crowd. The people repented and cried out for mercy. God told Moses to make the image of a serpent and hold it up in the middle of the camp. And anyone that looked on the serpent was cured. By looking to Jesus who was lifted up on the cross, looking to Jesus held up in the middle of the world, as it were, and then lifted up into heaven, God can heal us of anything that's bitten us, trying to take hold of us. The Son of Man had to be lifted up. Why? Well, look what he says. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. What does it mean to have eternal life? What does it mean? Eternal life is not merely existing forever. All of us are going to do that. One of two situations. So it can't simply be to live forever, to exist forever. Eternal life has to mean that we have peace with God, peace with others, peace within ourselves. Sometimes that's the hardest thing to have. Peace within ourselves. 
peace with life. I want to tell you, there are a lot of people outside of these doors. A lot of people I drove past today getting off the interstate that I saw that don't have peace anywhere. Because they don't have God really in their day to day life. How are they going to have God in their life unless we show them the change that God makes in us? How are they going to have God in their day to day life if we're not actually showing them what God has done to our lives by loving our neighbor. It's really truly an indictment of all of us who are members of God's family that so few people seem to know God. I really think that's because we there's a finger pointing at me. so happy to show God and what God's done for us when we come together and we sit down and when we sing songs and when we think and, and act spiritual. How do we do the rest of the week when we're out of these doors? How do we do when we run across people who are difficult to deal with? Am I one of those people who's difficult to deal with? Shows God in it every day, all of it. Because Jesus was lifted up that whoever believes in him should not perish but have eternal life. And then one of my favorite verses of the entire New Testament. For God loved the world so much. God loved the world so much that he gave his own, only begotten son, his one and only son. That whoever believes in him should not perish, but have everlasting life. God did not send his son, for God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but through him the world might be saved. How, how are we ever going to save the world if we're not living as if God is already saved? Why did Jesus come to the earth? We just got told that. Why did Jesus come to the earth? To save the world. Why on earth would God love the world? When the world's in rebellion to Him? Because of potential. Because of seeing the change that God knows can happen in each and every one of us. I need to make sure that I understand the change that's to be made in me with the new birth, and that I live my life as a member of His family. And that I love God every day, that I strive to live the way I should as a renewed person, and that I show my love toward my neighbor. Oh yes, love my neighbor, love my neighbor, and then I leave these doors, and I don't do, here's a biblical term, squat. What did I do this last week to show my love for my What did any of you do? We all know what we did or didn't do. We all know opportunities that maybe presented themselves to us. And I hope we all had great batting averages. That we had a great percentage of our opportunities 
that we seized and we did something? I don't know. I know my average probably was. God knows it all. And he looks at us to be his lights in the world. If you're already a member of God's family, that's truly the rededication I want to encourage each of us to make today. To live my life the way God wants me to. To wake up each morning saying, I will love God more today than yesterday. And I will show my love for my neighbor with how I treat my neighbor. Looking for opportunities to be that Samaritan in the lives of other people. And if I'm not yet a member of God's family, if you're listening to this at home or online, and you're not yet a member of God's family, please reach out. It's such an easy thing to do. God did not make becoming a member of his family a complicated thing at all. But you just simply have to understand that God loves you, that he sent his son to die for you. You need to understand your life has sin in it, as all of ours have had. And that you have to die to yourself and be buried in water, just as Justin Martyr and Cyprian said, and just as the New Testament says over and over and over again, to be raised to walk in newness of the opportunity is always yours. God loved the world so much that he sent his son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Won't you take hold of that hand God is offering today?